I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. It's the color of the sun cut flat and covering the crossroads I'm standing at. Or maybe it's the weather or something like that. But mama, you've been on my mind. I don't mean trouble. Please don't put me down or get upset. I am not pleading or saying I can't forget. I do not walk the floor bowed down and bent. But yet, mama, you've been on my mind. Even though my mind is hazy and my thoughts, they might be narrow. Where you been, don't bother me, nor bring me down in sorrow. It don't even matter to me where you'll be waking up tomorrow, but mama, you're just on my mind. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly, and joining me this week to talk about one of uh, Dylan's more unusual, unreleased songs, at least in some form, Mama, You've Been On My Mind, is longtime Bobcat Phil Hale. Hi, Phil. Welcome to the show. Hey, Rob. Uh, looking forward to it. Thanks very much for having me on. I'm thrilled to have you here. Uh, now, uh, you know, since this is your first time on the show, of course, we have to get into like your secret origin uh, with Bob Dylan, how you became a fan. Now, as far as I understand, you've seen him a couple of times live, right? <laughs> yeah, I've seen him. I think I, 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 uh, I did the kind of like kind of account, but I think I still missed a few. But it's around eighty now. Wow! <laughs> when did you start seeing him live? Uh, 1981. So Whoa. I saw him at the, just at, you know, the, the end of the kind of gospel period, but I mean, he was still, it was at Earl's Court in London. So he was still doing that. I still had the, uh, the girls and, and the whole, that whole thing, but, uh, obviously he started introducing his, uh, his older material at that point. So what were those shows like to see live? Um, it's a long time ago now, but like what I, what I remember from them was just, um, one, I, I didn't really know what I was getting into when I went there. Um, <laughs> and so I was kind of a little taken aback by this, you know, sort of gospel singing and it was pre-internet. So there was no kind of research went into this. I just saw he was playing, you know, got some tickets and, um, uh, and so there was this slight, okay, wow, I don't know what this is all about. And then there was, uh, this sort of follow up when when Dylan came onto the stage there's this kind of electric atmosphere that you know um he brought to the whole obviously the, to the arena but just his kind of performance presence was uh, was amazing so it was uh they were really really powerful shows again you've seen him 80 times i mean i'm guessing you go you see him it seems like you know probably a couple times a year at this point well not, not kind of, a couple times a year but i mean pretty regularly yeah i mean it it uh, it, it sort of comes in in batches, uh, frankly. So I saw him, you know, uh, every year I could for like, you know, uh, for sort of many years, one or two times. And then probably out of those 80, I've seen him maybe like 35 times since 2014. Um, so I've seen a lot of this sort of late era, Bob. Um, I just I mean, I'm like on I think last night was night five of the, the Beacon run. So I'm doing all seven nights of the Beacon. Wow, um, and uh, <laughs> I saw him in Connecticut last Tuesday, which you know he he the, the promoters got me by booking that show before they booked the Beacon show. So, um, and uh, so yeah, it's been a lot in that kind of post you know um, 
or sort of later era since then. Uh, but, you know, prior to that, yeah, I saw him a lot around like 2000 to 2004. And then I saw him, you know, I saw the Tom Petty tour. I saw like the stadium tour in 84. I saw, you know, um, a bunch of the early um, uh, never ending tour stuff, you know, in, in sort of 89, 90, 91 uh, and Hammersmith and all that kind of stuff. And then just sporadically, I flew to Milan to see him. I, I saw him, you know, around like here and there. I'm curious, like what does, can you explain to me? Cause I've never seen I, the most I've ever seen Bob, like in, in close succession. I think I saw like three shows in four days. That was my record sometime back in the, the nineties. Like what do you, can you explain what you get out of seeing him? <laughs> and that sounds so sarcastic and I don't mean it to be, but I mean, I think to the average person, if you said, I saw the same act seven days in a row, people would be like, what the hell are you, like, what are you getting out of it? It's like, what is it that you feel rewarded for that you see him seven nights in a row i mean that's extraordinary it doesn't even have to be the average person it's like anybody i know says that to me so okay, um, okay fair enough um uh i well okay so I, I i kind of approach it from two two angles and it's it's interesting given that, that it's a fixed set list so like you know previous times i've seen him in like succession you may be getting that sense of like, well, you know, maybe he's going to change the set list around a lot, which he did, you know, and you, you get like two or three songs that are different. Now I sort of, I, I guess I, I look at it from this point of view is that um, I, I, since 2014, I think he's been on this kind of musical theater kind of uh, like really sort of exploring his own roots in music and is, and integrating his new material into that. And, I find like the show that he's putting on like really, really fascinating. And so I, I, each night is slightly different. Um, each night there's a, like a different crowd. It's like he, he performs slightly differently on different songs. It's really subtle, but if you see them, you kind of notice it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's the other piece of it is oh, I, I kind of think to myself, well, you know what? This cannot go on forever, and I have been saying that since like 2000 or something. But this cannot, <laughs> this cannot go on forever. And there's this kind of like is really seven times in the context of of like this guy's career that much, you know? That's a good point. Um, yeah. Uh, and you know, I listen to his music pretty much every day, uh, and so I get the opportunity to go and do it, like hear him sing it live. It doesn't feel such a. Uh, I don't. I don't see it as a concert. It's no longer like a oh, you just did an event rock concert. It's this just getting to see this guy. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. like kind of get into his music on a nightly basis and perform it like on that kind of somewhat of a like tightrope, I think, you know, um, just because it, it is a, it is a sort of a live performance. So you just, you know, anything can, can go wrong, I guess. Uh, so there's always <laughs> that tension, you know? Right. It's funny that you mentioned about, uh, that you see the subtle differences because I remember I was at one show and I don't exactly remember which show it was. It wasn't that long ago. But I, we were pretty – me and my friend uh, Dan were pretty close up to the stage, and I, I don't even remember what song it was. But the band went on some sort of like extended riff, and clearly Dylan was pleased with it because he he was behind the keyboard. And he cracked just this tiny smile, but enough people saw it that they were like, woo, like they went nuts. And I thought to myself, you think about other musicians that probably have to do all kinds of histrionics to get the crowd warmed up. And all Bob had to do was just kind of do a slight grin. And that was enough for people to flip out. I mean, they're so in tune with like focusing on his face, his emotion, because he seems so um, unknowable. 
a lot of the time that when you see him just, you know, reveal even the slightest hint of being happy about something or just reacting to the moment, people like went nuts. I mean, it was it was such an extraordinary because it was so genuine. And he was like, that's the power he has. All he had to do is grin a little and it sent this ripple through the crowd. It was sort of remarkable. So that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, uh, you know, just to, to, to sort of that final point on that, I mean, I, I've gone with a few different people, some people going to their first concert, like, you know, friends of mine and other people that are, um, you know, more like aware of his stuff, but not necessarily big fans, but are kind of musically, you know, um, uh, attuned, you know, in certain ways. And so it's interesting also to see, you know, people, different people's reactions to it. But the, the friend I went with last night, you know, we were just talking about it afterwards of, of um, he is constantly like challenging you to forget everything, you know, Um, (laughs) and, you know, every sort of instinct that you have to, to fill in that song, to, to, you know, kind of sing it in your mind. He's challenging that and it, and is laying down that challenge every single night. Um, And uh, even if you're aware of what he's doing, because you've seen it the night before or whatever, it's still that piece of, of is he going to kind of like to your point you know is, is there just going to be a little kind of change in this the band are going to take it this way and he's going to allow that to happen mm-hmm. or is he going to mm-hmm. pull it back in and there all seems to be a slight obviously professional tension between him and the band too you know where he's he's sort of challenging them as well to follow him you know in some definitely quirky and uh, you know um uh non-traditional like uh, ways of playing the piano yeah, every that again that reminds me of a, a quote I read from uh, Bucky Baxter, who was in, of course, in the band for a long time. And somebody asked him about what's it, you know, what's it like playing with Bob Dylan? And he said, "Well, there are times where if you you know you did well right on stage, he throws you a look, and you are just the happiest you've ever been in your life because it's just you just are so rewarded that he likes what you've done. And then there's other times when you screw it up." And he says he gives you a look, and you just know that his thought is, you suck so bad. And he's like, you just don't want to get yeah. that from Bob Dylan. So I, I can't imagine um, how intimidating that must be to have that guy look at you and you know be like, yeah, that wasn't great. Oh, God. But I mean, we're jumping ahead a little. I want to ask you, like, how did you become a fan in the first place? Um, probably, uh, well, I mean, very. I remember the, the moment, a very definitive moment, um, uh, and uh, – a kind of odd moment. Now I look back on it. I, I was, uh, I grew up in England, obviously. And, um, uh, my parents had like a cafe, like a, you know, equivalent of a, a sort of, um, blue collar diner here. Um, and, uh, they used to, you know, make me help out. And I was sitting, I, I, I remember very specifically, uh, this is kind of one of those things, I guess, the power of music in a way like, that it takes you back to a, a very specific memory. Um, and, um, I was sitting in the backyard there and I remember it was like uh, chalk white walls and all that. And I can really, you know, picture that thing. And I, I was peeling some potatoes, which was the least favorite thing I had to do, but <laughs> it was the thing I was always forced to do. And I'm sitting there and I, I was listening to the radio and, um, and baby stop crying came on. And I just remember that moment of like, I'd never heard anything like that. I'd never, I, I, I don't think at that point I may have heard, you know, blowing in the wind or times are changing or, or whatever. I, I, I don't know that I had, but I'm, Maybe I had, um, but I was certainly unaware really of, uh, of Bob Dylan. This was like 19. Well, it was just after Street Legal came out. So 78. Right. Um, and Baby Stop Crying was a, a reasonable hit in the UK. I yes, think, it was. And it was yeah. in the States. Um, and uh, I remember just coming on the radio and I just went, wow, what's that? That's like 
I never heard anything like that. And so then I went out and bought the album. And then, you know, uh, from that moment on, you know, I guess the usual uh, thing of just buying, you know, all of the albums. And, and certainly I lived in a small town. They weren't all available. I, I don't remember the exact uh, chronology of me buying them. And I, and I certainly, you know, jumped back and forth, you know, on what was available to buy. Um, and that certainly made me realize, like, wow, this guy has many lives, you know, many musical lives. Um, and so uh, I, I just continued to sort of explore it, you know. That's amazing. I, what a deep cut to start with. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> baby stop I mean, crying. I, say, I, I, I look back, I still like the song because it has some memories for me, but I mean, I look back on it in the kind of pantheon of his work and just, wow, you know, that's a crazy minor song, relatively speaking, to, yeah. to hook somebody in, you know. Were your parents fans? No. Okay. They, they, okay. they weren't really music fans at all. So, okay. you know, I, okay. didn't, I didn't grow up with music in the house particularly. Oh, I see. You know? Okay. Interesting. But I was into punk at the time. Ah, well, well, right, 1978, right at the, uh-huh. the, the epicenter of that. So that's yeah, yeah. fantastic. That's really cool. Well, uh, that's. Uh, I'm very jealous that you've seen him that many times. I've, I have, you know, friends that I've mentioned. Oh, I've seen Bob Dylan 23 times, and they look at me like I'm crazy. And uh, you know, 80. You know, <laughs> that's uh, that's just unbelievable. So very cool. I'm very, very, very impressed by that. Um, so anyway, yeah, the song we're here to talk about, as I said, it's "Mama, You've Been on My Mind," which was originally. Uh, demoed, they were part of those Whitmark demos that he did in June of 1964, and then was attempted uh, at the legendary one night only session for his Another Side of Bob Dylan album and uh, left off the album. Uh, left off the album, and then that version eventually surfaced on the Bootleg series, Volume 1 through Volume 3. And you know, it's funny, on previous episodes of the show, uh, me and a guest have taken Bob to task for kind of, you know, damaging uh, his later albums with which uh, in, let's say, some curious song choices. Uh, let's let's put it that way, whether it be Infidels or Oh Mercy, there are some songs that were left off and you think, why? Why would he do that? But I mean, of course, this is a prime example of him doing that in the 60s. Uh, I mean, I don't know how you feel, Phil, but I would say that Bob choosing to leave this song off while finding uh, room for Ballad in Plain D or Motorcycle Nightmare. I, I don't know. I, mean, I think I think this one really should have been on there. Do you agree with me? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, well, yes and no. I mean, I, I, I agree with you 100 percent that it, that it should have been on the album. Um, but it also it was one of the things that piqued my interest in this song as to, you know, as much as you can speculate, as much as you can guess and, and you know, why he does anything in that in that sense. Um, as to specifically where this song sat in his songwriting development, his own personal relationship to it and his relationship to those other songs and, and his sort of attitude to his life at that time, given that he's what, like 22, 23 years old. Um, and so this young kind of, uh, you know, sort of spunky kid, whatever, effectively. I mean, I can't imagine that this guy was doing all this in, you know, at, at that age. Um, and so for me, there's this sort of part of it of, you know, Ballad of Plain D is a kind of, I mean, and, and I think he's referred to it as such, you know, uh, maybe you should have left that one alone or whatever it was he said about <laughs> yeah, it. Um, yeah. uh, but, you know, it's it's this sort of juxtaposition of like the artist songwriter and the kind of like revenge laden kid. Um, and, you know, so clearly it, it feels like when he was doing that album, he wanted to, to, you know, clear that slate with Ballad in Plain D and like get his thoughts out in there. And that's probably one of the most singular, 
um, autobiographical songs that he's ever released, right? Oh, it's, yeah. It's, you yeah. cannot in any way, shape or form mistake it for something else, right? Um, you know, what's it about? Who's it about? Like, you know, there's, there's, there's none of that. And this one, to your point, I mean, is, is you know, yeah, why is it not on the album? And it's a much more sophisticated song. Um, and, um, and I wonder, and this is, of course, 100% speculation, but I, I wonder whether the sentiments that he's expressing here, he'd kind of expressed them in some other, some of the other songs, um, you know, around that time, and was maybe just not feeling it for some for some reason, um, you know. So, uh, you know, it, it struck me that the kind of final verse of "To Ramona." Um, you know, has that uh, everything passes, everything changes, just do what you think you should do. And someday maybe, who knows, baby, I'll come be crying to you. It's a very similar sentiment of kind of like, it's a song that like, well, am I kind of, am I upset about this? Or am I having a little kind of like, eh, you know, a little dig back? Um, like, I'm not really that upset. Uh, and it sort of feels like, forget it's Bob Dylan, like a 23-year-old just kind of like feeling his way around a, a, a disintegrating relationship and who's at blame, who's at fault. And I wonder whether this was just one of a few of those, you know, and, and he just felt like maybe I'm, I'm not quite there with it. Um, uh, because I've, I've already kind of done it. in some of these other songs, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's, it's, that's a horrible, pointless speculation, but, um, uh, no, but I, that's it, that to me, that tracks, it makes a lot of sense. As you say, there is a lot of thematic similarities to two Ramona, which is a beautiful song. I love two Ramona. I got to get to that on the show at some point, but yeah, uh, it could be that as he was sort of looking at the, the tracks that he wanted to put on, he wanted to balance out two Ramona and, uh, and like, it ain't me, babe, which are, although he, it ain't me, babe is a little on the angrier side, but he wanted to balance out the, the tone as opposed to, yeah, putting on Mama, You've Been On My Mind, which is, again, is, a, is much more gentle. It's just much more um, combination of accusatory, but also a little bit of self-reproach. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. bowed, bowed in plain D is just a big F you. I mean, there's no, again, as you said, there's no other way to, to, to put it. Uh, and maybe that's what he wanted. He wanted that kind of like, okay, I got this, I got this point on the curve here, and I got this point on the curve here, and then I got this point way on the other side of the curve here. Uh, I, again, you know, I've said on previous episodes, my attitude is always, you just put the best songs. Don't worry about the rest of it. Just put, just put the best songs on. Um, and I don't want to constantly refer to this song just in the contrast of other songs. But this song, the version on the Bootleg series, I like quite a bit. I like the, I like the, the lyrics um, very a lot. I, again, I like the kind of yin and yang of it. I mean, it goes on. Uh, he says, I'm not asking to say for you to say words like yes or no. Please understand me. I got no place for you to go. I'm just breathing myself. Pretend that not that I don't know. Mama, you've been on my mind. And then he wraps it up with, when you wake up in the morning, baby, look inside your mirror. You know I won't be next to you. You know I won't be near. I'll just be curious to know if you can see yourself as clear as someone who has had you on his mind. And I love the way that, that the song resolves itself. And I like the Bootleg Series version. I thought it was good. Uh, and then later on, there's the version that uh, appeared on the live 1975 set that was done on the Rolling Thunder review that he does with Joan Baez. But then uh, I happened to just get a random version of it on a bootleg that I bought in New York City one day, which was from like a 1992 concert. There's no particular reason why that song was picked. It's just, I guess, the person who was compiling the bootleg liked it. And uh, and I'll play a little bit of it at the end of the show. I really love that version because it's much quieter. It's just kind of – it almost sounds like somebody 
talking, thinking out, barely, barely thinking out loud. Meanwhile, it's done as a song, and I really like that version. So that's the version that I really, that it really hooked into me of just this kind of like quiet rumination of thinking of this relationship and thinking about the things that you say to this person and trying to get them to understand how you feel, but also not wanting to push them too hard. I mean, the line's like, I'm not asking you to say words like yes or no. Please understand me. I I like that gentleness to it. And gentleness is not something that Dylan is always associated with, but I like that it's so evident here. Yeah, definitely. And and I, I um uh that's a great version of it, a ninety two version of it. And and I, I think uh it it sort of um leads me onto a few other thoughts because um uh as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, this may explain the seven nights a week <laughs> thing as well. Is that when when I when I uh, I had actually heard it I think it was like a uh, 2000, uh, the year 2000 version of the song that, you know, I've been listening to your shows. I love your shows and I've been listening to them. And maybe it's actually, uh, has made me think about his music differently. Just, uh, the, the thing that you do of reading the lyrics at the beginning really just kind of reset my thinking a little bit because I'd always, even just after like 40, whatever years it is, it had sort of really focused a lot on the sound. If you like, I just like the sound of it. Um, not this song, or you know, that, that whole kind of his whole genre of music. And it really, of course I paid attention to lyrics, but it really reset the way I thought about them actually. Um, so I, then I'm listening to, to that version of it. Um, and the sort of, the, the sort of slightly, you know, the country fied, like bluegrassy kind of approach to the song. Um, and it, it sort of, made me kind of look at the song again and I look at the song okay well I have to kind of think about this if if we're going to do the show so I ended up listening to like I think approximately 106 versions of it um and <laughs> that's uh, my single favorite data point of this entire part I, I you know it didn't start that way it's the same way it didn't start buying tickets it didn't start that way it didn't start that way I just kind it of never listened does. to a few <laughs> and then I thought well you know what if there's something different so I kept listening I kept listening and I kept listening and it's fortunately it's a short song. That's a big right. plus. <laughs> yeah. um, you couldn't listen to 106 versions of Saturday Night yes. the Lowest. So I'd be cooking and I'd be listening. My wife is, you know, absolutely mad at me because she's heard this song in the background like <laughs> 106 times, probably two. Um, but uh, anyway, that aside. So um, the the more I sort of listened to it and I listened to uh, I heard a couple of comments during live performances um, that just made this song like become okay it's becoming more and more interesting so um i i really like that the reintroduction to it from 75 he starts playing it again in 88 right and through that kind of beginning first few years of uh, uh of the never-ending tours as as so-called and then on one night he mentions um this uh is an old song based on an old song um by bill monroe and i you know, I don't know. I don't know enough about Bill Monroe, but I, you know, that he has a song called Blue Night, um, which is Blue Night. I got you on my mind. Blue Night. I can't keep from crying. You met someone that was new. You quit someone that you knew was true. And it continues about aching hearts and whatever. And then it ends with um, Blue Night all by myself. Since you put me on that shelf, there's just one thing that you must know. You're going to reap just what you sow. Huh. And it, I, I don't know if that's the song that he's referring to. It, it you know, I, I, there's a limit to even my, you know, ability to, or willingness to research like now the whole music of Bill Monroe. But I kind of searched around and that's what I found. And, and it seems to make sense to me that that song is perhaps, you know, the influence of this one. 
So, um, you know, to to your point of like versions of this song, it feels like that 92 version um, is going back to this sort of bluegrassy kind of influence of the song. Uh, and interesting that he brings it back into his set list at that point, having kind of goofed it up with Joan Baez for <laughs> two tours, you know. Yeah, um, it's 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 remarkable that it's a song that he so definitively uh, rejected from the record, and yet it's never really left his repertoire. He's done mm-hmm. it; he's played it live two hundred and one times, which is uh-huh. all, barely more than you've heard it. Uh, but I mean, spanning from all the way from nineteen sixty four to two thousand nine. So mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's you would think that for a song that he so decidedly left off a record that it would have some sort of period where he he didn't return to it. He, it's always been part of the repertoire in one way or the other, which is kind of remarkable. So he must have realized it had some value to it to him. And I, again, now just as I'm sort of talking of uh, speaking extemporaneously, I think that gives credence to your theory that he decided that it didn't it didn't balance the album the way he wanted to, but he also knew the song had real value. And so, therefore, it's a song he could do live, but maybe not something he wanted to put on the record. Because as we know, as we've heard from other sources, he doesn't regard his records as these sort of sacrosanct, immutable objects. You know, he just kind of regards them as, ah, I did the best I could at the moment, but I'm going to take these all this stuff out on the road, and that's where it's really going to come alive or it's going to die. So I th- those two those two things seem to to mix together quite well because it's a song that he has been playing uh, consistently for 50 years. And so obviously he knows it's, it's a pretty good tune. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I feel like he maybe needed to get some distance from it in a way. And, and, and it's interesting again, that like, you know, the live versions, you know, without getting too sort of autobiographical about it, because, I, you know, I, I, I think there's, there's the art form, right. There's the, the writing of a song that's kind of summing up, feelings of, of an individual and becoming universal, which is, is that art form. And then there's the, the sort of autobiographical parts of it, like someone has to write a song from a point of view, um, is that it, it, it's, to me, the way I, I kind of hear this life of this song in, in his body of work is that um, adding those, you know, like he's, let's say, well, let's go with the speculation that this song is, you know, mainly about Susie Rotola, right? right. Let's just right. say that's that's let's just agree that for the sake of it. But during that exact period around 64, he's also like that relationship is breaking up. And part of it's breaking up is because he's supposedly allegedly having, you know, a relationship with Joan Baez at the time. And within another year, you know, he, he gets married. Right. So. Again, if, if if forget that it's him specifically and speculating on his specific life, that just the the life of a 23, 24, 25-year-old guy who's having all those massive life changes and along with the music, it he plays this song in 64 with Joan Baez. It's on the, the you know, that bootleg, um, the 64 official bootleg. Right. Um, well, he can't remember the words. He asks her what the words are. He's like, um, she sings daddy in the first, you know, verse, and it kind of like he gets back at her by elongating the the opening uh, word of the next <laughs> line. So he's doing that thing. Where, and so it suddenly, you know, if if you think about the song as a sort of what's the what's the impulse behind the song? Is it is it like is there a little element of like yeah, I'm not pleading. You know, well, I'm a bit embarrassed because I did plead. Um, mm. I, you know, I, is there sort of an element of I think you mentioned it earlier of this song he's just talking to himself actually it's not even sung to anybody it's not written to anybody it's 
him reflecting on this, you know, moments in a relationship where maybe he kind of embarrassed himself a little bit, you know, like he was too eager. Um, uh, and now he's kind of just, you know, well, I'm, I'm like distancing myself from that relationship. And, you know, one way of doing that would be to sing it with another woman that supposedly in that, you know, um, kind of era of your relationships and then goof it up. Like it's not a serious song at all. Mm. Um, and because, you know, if you read the the words and you read all the, and you, you listen to all the cover versions of it, it's this incredibly, you know, plaintive, moving, sad, like, you know, song. And there he is kind of just totally, um, uh, messing around with it. And then, doesn't look at it for another 11 years or whatever live and then brings it back into the Rolling Thunder tour again with John Byers um, and then leaves it alone again but goes back to it when it's his music itself is reconnecting with that uh, like folk bluegrass tradition, uh, you know, at the beginning of the never ending tour where he gets back into that sort of acoustic um, presentation of his music and, 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 playing cover songs and, and all that kind of stuff. He revisits this song and then goes on like quite a tear of playing it um, over the next few years, exploring the, again, maybe the Bill Monroe origination of it. You know, hey, I wrote that song and it was kind of, you know, at the time I was like writing a lot of songs. I was like super productive. I was having these relationships. I was like, I had a lot of feelings. I had a lot of stuff going on. Um, maybe I should go pick that up again and just do it the way I kind of, heard it when I first wrote it in my mind because I did all that stuff with Joan, but that was just goofing around. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, and then just, yeah, like, as you say, he explored it a lot, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it did in those 106 versions that I listened to, it kind of moved through, a, <laughs> it moved through a sort of, you know, lots of different kind of vocal approaches to it. I mean, they were, they were not massively different, but some, you know, he would be, he would sound like more, uh, mellow about it and sad about it. Other times he would feel a little bit more accusatory about it. Um, sometimes he would feel just a little bit like kind of anger pushing away from it. Um, you know, and he would put it to a more countrified and more bluegrassy, you know, there was, and so he just clearly likes the vehicle of the song to explore that, that whole idea. I think, I don't know. You know, that's how yeah, it reads to me. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me a little bit, just as I'm rereading the words here, um, it reminds me a bit of most of the time from Oh Mercy because it's, uh, it's yeah, the, exactly. the, these lines where the, the, the singer is state is making these statements and then in like the final line of each individual verse, he's pulling it back a little. You know, he's saying, I'm not in most of the time, he's like, I'm not I don't even think of her. Pause. Most of the time. And it's, you know, he's, it's like two steps up, one step back. And he's got that here where he says, I do not walk the floor, bow down and bent, but yet, mama, you've been on my mind. So it's this kind of like constantly sort of trying to push the woman and saying, hey, don't worry about it. Now we're good. Everything's fine. I'm not even thinking about you. I'm not worried about where you've been. Doesn't bother me. But yet, you know, there's always just that slight, just the, the little extra little coda that he's putting on at the end of every verse, which I really find Quite interesting. And you mentioned cover versions. There's many cover versions. Of course, there's Baez. Uh, apparently, Linda Ronstadt did one where she sang it as Daddy, You've Been On My Mind, which uh, is a colder thing. Um, but George Harrison has one, uh, which is on YouTube. It was it appeared on the uh, Living in the Material World, I guess, collection. I don't think that's uh, that was like sort of a compilation thing. And uh, that's on YouTube. And I actually like that version quite a bit. I think it's quite beautiful. Uh, we all know. I mean, we just 
in the previous episode uh, that, that came out, we talked about George Harrison. We all know how much George Harrison loved Bob and revered Bob's work. There aren't that many examples of George Harrison literally singing Dylan songs. So I find it interesting that he covered a relatively obscure one like this. I like the Harrison version quite a bit. It's very beautiful. I mean, Harrison was a beautifully, wonderfully expressive singer. So I like his version too. And so I think this is this is something a lot of people, again, can relate to of this idea of you know, when you end a relationship with somebody, uh, it's not, you know, you like to think you draw that line and it's over, but it's never fully over, at least for a long period of time. You know, there's always that slight little bit going backwards, you know, going forward, then going backwards. And I, I like that push and pull of the song. So I said, it's, I mean, God, at 81 episodes in, you can't help but repeat myself, but it's, it just keeps underscoring to me the genius of this guy, that this is a song that is, exists on the margins of his career. I mean, this is not a song most people know. It's it's not a song that would was never a hit in any real way. I don't think it's ever been used in some sort of like a movie in sort of big way. I mean, it does appear in um, I'm Not There. It does appear in, in that movie. But it's it's not a particularly famous song. I wouldn't put it in, you know, his 400 most famous songs. And yet it's beautiful. I mean, we've been sitting here talking about it for talking about it for a half hour, which is <laughs> remarkable. Yeah, without without doubt. I mean, a hundred percent on on most of the time. I mean, I, I, that was one of the things that 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 definitely you know occurred to me. Um, it, it's it's again, it's it's almost like a, that's a mature version of this song, almost. Right, you know, right. um, like a, an older guy looking at the same idea. Um, and yeah, hundred percent agree. I mean, I think if this this would have been a breakout hit for you know Dave Van Ronk or or, or Tom Paxton or any of those guys who were writing their own songs or, or trying to write their own songs. I know Dave Ramron was not particularly, but, you know, I mean, he did write some of his own songs. If he could have written this at that time, you feel that's a different trajectory to his whole career. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and, yeah, it's a kind of a throwaway for Dylan that's just like, yeah, I'll get back to that one day or <laughs> I'll, I'll just, like, mess around with it with Joan, you know. It's, right, um, right. Because she actually recorded it first, I think. Uh, and she right, did record yeah. it as Daddy, You've Been On My Mind. Um so, um, yeah, 100%. And that's why it was like the more I looked at this song, I, I was like more the more I was like, you know, wow, like uh, how does that guy write this song and then just leave it alone? Um, yeah. It's remarkable to think about. And and I can only imagine what it would be like to – I mean like I've seen bits and pieces here in the interviews with him where he has talked about going back into his own catalog and kind of being like, did I write that? Like, wow, yeah. I don't even remember writing that. I mean imagine writing so many songs that you can have that kind of like – loss of oh well that's pretty good you know <laughs> like it's kind of remarkable so yeah it's a really beautiful song we're going to play a couple different versions of it at the end of the show so um i don't know is there anything else you want to say about mama you've been on my mind for we wrap up phil uh okay one thing and i, I don't know if this is going to start another whole segue into it but like one one thing is just the opening the opening line the opening two lines you know Perhaps it's the color of the sun cut flat and covering the crossroads I'm standing at. It's for me, it's like, again, an indication of of this guy, like starting to put this poetical imagery into songwriting mm. that perhaps wasn't there, you know, at that time. Um, and it's this sort of one of the many stepping stones towards his influence on on the whole uh, art of songwriting that you know, that, that is sort of crucial to his, his, uh, his sort of place in, in, in all of this, you know, um, it, it, it's a very interesting and, and kind of evocative like image of, you know, this, this guy being, I mean, how it sounds to me is this guy 
you know, being blinded by a um, of this sort of low lying sun, and and um, and feeling, uh, you know, I don't know what to do with this. I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm at this crossroads, and I'm kind of not getting a clear view because of this sun in my eyes. You know, it's the color of that sun. It's kind of there, and and it and it leads on to this. I think actually somewhat ambiguous song you know Mm. um yeah the the line about i mean first of all just mentioning the crossroads brings up all sorts of blues allusions to the crossroads and the you know robert johnson and things like that but of course the line and covering the cover covering the crossroads i'm standing at that feels like that could have been a line in my back pages mm -hmm. i mean that that's that whole song is the idea of leaving your past behind and taking a turn and going a different direction so yeah this record i mean if you go back and you look at the trajectory of the man's career, you can see that this album really is the midpoint between the the personal, more finger-pointing kind of stuff from Times Era Changing and then the more uh, you know world imagery kind of stuff that you would see on Bringing It All Back Home. I mean, it really mm-hmm. is that, that middle step. And so you can see how this album – I know that he hated the title – Another side of Bob Dylan. It's like he he hated, and I guess even in 1964, he did not have quite enough heft to be able to name the album the way he wanted it to. But I know he said he hated it. He felt it sounded a little cheesy, and I think it kind of does. Another side of Bob Dylan it just sounds very, you know, like right on the nose. Like another side. Yeah, okay, we get it, we get it. But nevertheless, yeah, this is it's a terrific song. So, um, Phil, thank you so much for coming on, man. I, I love again. I, I say on the show probably every episode. I love talking to other Bob fans. And, and, uh, when you, again, you told me that you've seen him 80 times. I was like, Oh my God, this is just unbelievable. So this has just been so much fun talking to you. Yeah, it was great. I really, uh, really enjoyed it. Thanks very much, Rob. Awesome. Well, again, thanks everybody for listening. Of course, you want to follow the show. You can subscribe to it on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can find back episodes of the show on our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. And we're always talking Bob Dylan, and I'm constantly quoting uh, lyrics <laughs> over on Twitter, which is at pod underscore Dylan. And so before I sign off, I just want to say this is the last show of calendar year 2018. And I just want to thank everybody for listening and sticking with the show. Um, I've been, I don't bother to really pay attention to the downloads, the download numbers that much. Cause I just, I don't, I generally don't really care. I kind of do the show for myself and I do it for my guests and I do it to have these conversations. Uh, and if five people listen, that's great. And if 5,000 people listen, that's great too. But, uh, the show has really grown in leaps and bounds, uh, in, the, in just the last year. And I have guests sort of piled up uh, all the way through, like, until the, the middle of next year, practically. And I wish I had the time to do the show more than every other week the way I do. I could do it every week, if again, if I had the time. So I really thank everybody for caring so much about this show. I am, of course, in, in the history of uh, analyzing Bob Dylan, I am a tiny, 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 tiny piece of plankton in a vast ocean. Uh, but I appreciate all the, the warm thoughts I get from people about this show because I really do. I, I love doing it, and I love that, that people enjoy it. So thanks, everybody, for a great 2018, and I'm looking forward to doing uh, more shows in 2019. I have some really cool stuff coming up, and I think you'll enjoy it. So, again, thanks, everybody, for listening. And until, uh, I guess, 2019, uh, take it easy, and we will see you later. Bye. Perhaps it's the color of the sun cut flat and covering the crossroads I'm standing at. Or maybe it's the weather or something like that. But mama, you've been 
on my mind I don't mean trouble please don't put me down no get upset I am not pleading Oh saying I can't forget you I do not pace the floor bowed down and bent but yet mama you've been on my mind 